Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given us something rock solid to stand on, to know you by. I thank you that you have given us a way not to flounder and be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, every opinion of man, the changing tide of culture. But Father, you have given us a way to know you, distinctly, specifically know you. Father, I pray this morning that you will use your word to do what only you can to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our lives, Father. And we will be certain to give you and you alone the glory for what you want to do here this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I hope that uh, you and your families had a good Thanksgiving this this past week. And uh, I just want to say a big thank you to all of you who were able to help us move yesterday. Uh, Praising the Lord that the weather today was not the weather yesterday. Uh, It was a beautiful day for moving. I know many of you had expressed a desire to help, but with it being Thanksgiving weekend, you had uh, Thanksgiving things to go to, but I appreciate your, your desire to help. But again, thank you to all of those who came out and helped us yesterday. It was a huge and massive blessing to us. And uh, just real quick, 
Uh, we've had some questions as far as where we're at in our support raising process as we uh, head to life action. Uh, a few weeks ago, we shared that God had really gotten a hold of my heart, uh, that I had made the whole support raising process into a matter of self-sufficiency and what I could do. Uh, and at that point, we'd been raising support for four and a half months, and we were at 26%. And when I decided to quit relying on my self-sufficiency and real relying on God's all-sufficiency, um, in that one month, he took us from 26% to 62%. So, huge praise to God. And uh, within the next few days, very realistically, uh, we may be at 70%. So, God is good. So, uh, covet your continual prayers on that as we continue that support-raising process. And I decided this morning that I wanted to start the sermon with, with something exciting. And uh, as a Marvel fan, I'm like, what's more exciting than an Avengers movie? So, <laughs> I hope that's not the only amen I get, but thank you. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to start off this morning with a clip from one of the Avengers films. Wasn't that exciting? <laughs> uh, how many of you guys know what part of the movie that's from? Yeah, that's, that's the post-credit scene. Now, what was the last thing we saw the Avengers doing before this? The Battle of New York. You know, everybody doing their, their battling, their fighting, every Avenger doing their part. Uh, I remember when, when Liam was much, much younger, I am a huge Captain America fan. And when Liam was a lot younger, I wanted him to see Captain America in action. So I, I showed him the Battle of, the New, Battle of New York, and I'm like, so, what did you think? He goes, I really like the Hulk. <laughs> Mission failed. Now, uh, this was the post credit scene, and today's passage is kind of, on the surface, similar to that scene. Because here we are in, in Genesis 21, back, back in chapter 15, God appears as this smoldering fire pot and a flaming torch to establish a covenant with Abraham. In chapter 16, Hagar runs away because of the way Sarah is treating her, but an angel appears and says, Hagar, return. And then in chapter 17, God speaks to Abraham again to, to reaffirm uh, his promise, his covenant, and he establishes circumcision uh, as a sign of that covenant. In chapter 18, God and a couple of angels show up uh, to Abraham to, to say, hey, you're going to have a son soon. Uh, and then chapter 19, God sends these angels to supernaturally save Lot uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah. Then in chapter 20, God causes all the women in Abimelech's kingdom to go barren, and then he appears to Abimelech in a dream. And then in the beginning of chapter 21, an angel comes down to comfort Hagar, and God speaks to her saying, you're going to be fine. And now in this part of chapter 21, hey, you took my well. It, it seems kind of like that, this huge battle of New York, and then they're just sitting there eating. We've been reading all these things about God showing up in big ways, doing big, exciting things, and now we see, oh, somebody took Abraham's well. 
All right. What's next chapter about? Uh, and that's the way it seems on the surface. But one awesome thing about this passage is that it shows us something about Abraham. He was a real guy who had day-to-day life. Not everything was a Facebook post. Because, you know, on Facebook, everybody posts the highlights. They post the really cool things that are happening in their life. And we look at it and think, everybody else has this huge, exciting life. And then there's my life. Well, no, this was life. Not everything is is big and exciting. There is real life to be lived by real people. It's encouraging to know that when we read the Old Testament, we're not reading stories with characters. We're reading historical events with historical people. It's grounded in truth. But so we have this this event that shows us that there is day-to-day life, even for those where it seems everything is angels and visions and flaming, smoking fire pots and stuff. We all have real life. We all have real life. So the beginning of this passage, it says, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you. And so they come to him. And we have a tendency to read the Bible in chronological order that this event happened here and then this event is recorded next. So it must have happened after this event. Kids, how many of you guys, your dad has ever told you about some place he ever visited before you, before you were born? Your dad ever talk about places he's gone? How many of you, when he does that, he, he ended the story with, by the way, did you know, or have I ever told you? And you're like, oh no, please dad, just leave the story the way it was. It was good that way. Well, what we have is kind of that. Up earlier, when, when Abraham sent Hagar away, it says she went to Beersheba. Now what we're about to find out is, how did Beersheba even get its name? Why were there wells there in Beersheba? Because remember, the story ended with God opening Hagar's eyes to the fact that there was a well there. So how did Beersheba get its name? Well, at that time, is kind of like that thing where... God is saying, by the way, here's how Beersheba got its name, and here's why there's a well there. So this isn't some chronological order. This is kind of a, hey, have I ever told you how Beersheba got its name? So that's what we're reading here this morning. So Abimelech, the king of this, or the ruler of this area, came with Phicol, the commander. And uh, kids, say that the school principal and the resource officer came up to you and said, we want to talk to you. Now, how many of you kids would be wondering what you did? How many of you guys would be wondering how they found out what you did? (laughs) Yeah. But then they they take you in there, take in the office, and you get in there, and they look at you and say, God is with you. Please be nice to us. Don't say anything bad about us, okay? How many of you kids would be thinking, there's some like parallel universe that I have fallen into. I'm in the multiverse. So yeah, that's not what we would expect if the principal and the resource officer came and said, we need to talk with you. 
But that's actually what we find here uh, with Abimelech and Phicol, the commander here. This, this ruler and his, the commander of his army come and say, Abraham, we need to talk. And they say, God's with you in all that you do. So swear to me here by God that you're not going to deal falsely with me uh, or my descendants or with my posterity. That means grandkids, so on and so forth. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me. He's saying, Abraham, God is with you. God blesses you. So kind of use that for my favor, Abraham, would you please? Um, be nice to us, because I know that if you're nice to us, God's going to be nice to us. So this is what's going on in this passage. And then it, it picks up right here, and it says in verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well. So if you remember, Abimelech, back a couple chapters, uh, Abraham did the thing that he actually did on a regular basis. Uh, when they were going into a new land, he told Sarah, Hey, Sarah, when we get here, tell everybody that you're my sister, because they will kill me so that they can have you as a wife. And so Abraham said, hey, just tell everybody you're my sister so they don't kill me to take you as, as a wife. So they get into Abimelech's land. They tell the lie to Abimelech. So what does Abimelech do? He takes Sarah as his wife. Now God, as Pastor Matt has preached uh, a few weeks back, uh, kept Abimelech from uh, in doing anything with Sarah so that when Isaac came along, everybody would know, no, that's Abraham's baby, not Abimelech's. And that's when... God said, okay, Abimelech, you just took another man's wife. The women in your kingdom will have no children. And then, the, can you imagine if God looked at you and said, you're a dead man? How many guys would go, <laughs> oh, he's not kidding. That would strike terror. And that's exact, those were God's words. He said to, to Abimelech, you're a dead man. And that's when Abimelech's like, Lord, I, I had no idea. Uh, so... Abimelech and Abraham have a history. Uh, now, Abimelech gave Sarah back to Abraham, said, hey, uh, pray for us that everything would go well with us. And Abraham prayed, and Abimelech's women started having children again. And Abimelech wasn't a dead man. Uh, God didn't take his life. And then Abimelech said, hey, Abraham, here's a bunch of sheep and oxen and all that kind of stuff, and you can live anywhere you want. So again, Abraham, Abimelech have the, this past history. And this taking place here, uh, we know it took some place after that, and probably sometime before Isaac was weaned. So Abraham's been there for three, maybe four years. So there is some sort of a relationship between Abraham and Abimelech. So verse 25 says, When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water, that Abimelech's servants had seized. Now, in other words, he's about to get in a fight with Abimelech over something. Now, if you're going to get into an argument, kiddos, if you're going to get into an argument with someone about who owns what, would you do it about some water or gold? How many guys would fight somebody over some water? Okay, how about over gold? Oh yeah, a lot more hands. Well, Abraham's about to get in a fight with somebody over water. But why? Well, the Negev Desert is where they're at. 
That's where Beersheba is. It's in what's called the Negev Desert. Now, here in LaGrange County, we get about 38 inches of water every year, 38 inches of rain. Over in the Negev, they get about, they get about seven inches of water, way less than us. So say that you were stranded in the desert. Help me. How many would you would crawl around, kids, going, gold, gold, I need gold? Anybody? How many guys would be crawling around going, water, water, I need water? Okay, yeah, we would definitely be wanting water a whole lot more than we would be wanting gold. And so that is why Abraham is about to get in this argument over water. See, where they lived, where they were at, wealth wasn't measured uh, by how much money or how much gold you had. Wealth and prosperity were measured by the size of your flocks and your herds. Kids, what happens to flocks and herds if there's no water? (laughs) Yeah. No flocks, no water. Or, yeah, no water, no flocks. So, we're about to have a serious uh, confrontation here. But the thing is, it says, Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this thing to you. Uh, You didn't tell me about it, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham approached Abimelech based on maybe some rumors or some gossip. He came here and he confronted Abimelech without getting all of the facts. And as a result, he is about to cause some conflict and maybe a separation of a friendship. And Abraham, again, Abraham's reaction created the potential for a rift. When it says, when Abraham reproved Abimelech, uh, that, that word means to argue or dispute or chide or to scold. In other words, he was scolding Abimelech. He was scolding Abimelech. And so Abraham was guilty of making assumptions, not just about Abimelech's actions, hey, you did this thing, but that also was a reflection on Abimelech's character. Not only did you do this thing, but this thing you did was wrong. You stole, you stole a wealth from me. You stole something from me that is vital to life. And whenever we confront somebody based on secondhand knowledge, it's making an assumption about that person's character. If, if you heard about something somebody said or did and you go and you confront them, you're actually making an assumption about their character as well. Uh, that's why your first conversation, that's why Abraham's first conversation should have been about asking questions of Abimelech, not confronting him on something. Abraham went with all, without all of the facts. And I kind of like this story because like other things we hear about Abraham, we find out he's not perfect. That's one of the reasons we can trust scripture. If you wanted to write about a, this, this hero that that is going to be, his life will be a foundation of your faith, chances are you're not going to shine this kind of a light on him. The fact that he lied multiple times about his wife, the fact that he confronts somebody about something based on secondhand knowledge without ever even trying to get all the facts. Abraham was far from perfect. 
Now, how many of you, that puts you in the same boat as Abraham? Far from perfect. We are all far from perfect. And yet, God used Abraham in incredible ways. We don't have to be perfect for God to use us in incredible ways. We, all we need for God to use us in incredible ways is his grace. And he lavishes that upon us. So there is hope for us as we look at what Abraham is doing here. And you know, a lot of times when it comes to uh, something we, we have said or something we have done, how many of you guys want people to give you the benefit of the doubt that maybe you were misunderstood? That no, you didn't mean anything mean by it. You weren't wishing anything ill. You weren't trying to be malicious. You want people to give you that benefit of the doubt. But how many times do we go and talk to other people without ever thinking about giving them the benefit of the doubt? We, we rush to confront somebody on something that they said or did without ever taking a moment to go, did I misunderstand them? Was there maybe something else going on that I, I, I'm not sure about? Uh, this is kind of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7, you know, one of the most quoted passages do not judge lest you be judged. Well, in verse 2 there, he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You want to judge people without grace? Then be prepared to be judged without grace. The way you confront and treat people is the way they are going to confront and treat you when it comes to what the things you have said, the things you have done. And I love Proverbs eighteen seventeen. It says this, the one who states his case first seems right. In other words, somebody comes to you and says, so-and-so did this thing, or so-and-so said this, and you get all fiery mad. But here's what Proverbs 18, 17 finishes saying. It says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. In other words, oh, that, what that person said seems right. Until you start asking a few questions, and then you find out, oh, maybe that's not the way it happened after all. Maybe that's not what they said after all. That's why we need to be careful about rushing to confront somebody. Romans 12, 18 says this, and kids, this is your memory verse for this week. It's there on your coloring pages. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This means we don't rush to confront. We don't rush to make judgments about people. We do what Matthew 5, 23 and 24 say. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, go and seek forgiveness. Uh, and that doesn't mean telling them that you're sorry. It doesn't mean saying, I apologize. Because if you say, oh, I'm sorry, or hey, I apologize, what is the person's usual response? Uh, it's okay. Well, no, it's not. If it was okay, there would have been no reason to go to them. When we know that we have done something to somebody else, we don't go to say we're sorry. We don't go to apologize. We go to say this. I was wrong for what I did. Will you forgive me? 
See, what that does, it actually gives them an opportunity for a Christ-like response to say, yes, I forgive you. But when you just say, oh, I'm sorry, or I apologize, there's one expected response from that. It's okay. What does that mean? It's okay. But when we say, will you forgive me? That gives them an opportunity to show Christ-likeness in their response rather than just brushing something aside. So when you need to make something right, as Matthew 5 talks about, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not, I apologize, it's, I have done wrong. It was wrong for me to do this thing, whatever it was. Would you please forgive me? That's the path to reconciliation. But then there's another passage that's often quoted, and that's Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Notice it says if your brother sins against you, not if your brother offends you. See, we live in a culture where if you are offended, it automatically means the other person did something wrong. That's not the way it works. Just because you're offended actually doesn't mean the other person has done anything wrong. And if you read that passage, again, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. In other words, this is saying if they have committed a sin, if they have done something wrong, then go and confront him. It doesn't mean just because you were offended that you need to go confront that individual. There are some things you have to, to think about. Uh, Proverbs 10.12 says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. But love covers all offenses. Proverbs 19.11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And I'm about to get into something that might step on some toes, um, but one southern preacher, southern preachers usually have the best phrases. One southern preacher said, if I'm stepping on your toes, it's because your feet are in the wrong place. So... Uh, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Uh, this past week, somebody said something to me that honestly deeply, deeply hurt me. I mean, it deeply hurt me. It took me a couple days. But I had to stop and think. Should I actually be offended? Should I actually be hurt over what they, they did? Should I be offended? If I am offended, is it because they actually sinned against me, or is it that my feelings were hurt? Is it really bad enough that I need to make a big deal out of it by going to them? I had to ask myself, is this someone who I know regularly seeks to honor the Lord and is not usually looking to offend people? Then you know what? I can probably overlook it. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Just because you're offended and got your feelings hurt doesn't mean you need to go to the person. You know, the, 
Proverbs 29, 11, we all know the people who in one way or another say, well, I just speak what's on my mind. As it says, the fool gives full vent to his spirit. It's on my mind, I'm going to say it. But a wise man quietly holds it back. Why? Because that anger stirs up strife. It's not a, a good thing to always be the person who speaks what's on their mind. Sometimes you need to quietly hold it back until you've had time to ask yourself those questions that I needed to ask myself. And you know what? At the end of it, I'm like, there's no reason for me to be offended. They did nothing to intentionally hurt me, and I know their intentions. They're a good and godly friend. They would not do something to purposely hurt me. They did not sin against me, and now I'm fine. Without having to confront a person, because they did not sin against me, there was no need to confront them. Are you offended based on what actually happened, or what was actually said, or... Are you offended by what you think they said or what by you think they did? Or even worse, are you offended by what you were told the other person said? You need to be careful because when you go into a situation to confront because of what you think they said, what you think they meant, what somebody else said they did, you're like Abraham here confronting Abimelech when Abimelech was like, I don't know anything about this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. Maybe go, hey, I just wanted to ask what you meant when you said, or I wanted to ask, did you say this thing versus, well, you offended me when you said this. Because that's how it often starts. Well, I was offended. I was hurt when you said this. Well, how about going, hey, did you actually mean this when you said this? Ask questions first. Uh, I had a friend one time say that accusations close the spirit, but a question opens the mind. In other words, you want them to be open to what you have to say. So if you start with the accusation, I'm offended, which in our culture means you were wrong for what you did, their spirit's closed, and you're like Abimelech responding, I didn't, I didn't know anything about this. And you didn't ever come and talk to me about it. You start that process of a fight rather than process of reconciliation. So if, if you are the kind of person who finds yourself regularly being offended, maybe it isn't actually that people are saying or doing offensive things. And hear me out here. It may mean that you need to get over yourself. Uh, now, if you just got offended by me saying that, just saying. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just going to leave it right there. If you find yourself regularly and easily getting offended, you might need to get over yourself because it might mean it's not everybody else's problem. Uh, they tried to make a young Indiana Jones uh, series a long time ago. And River Phoenix, if any of you guys remember River Phoenix, he died back in the early 90s. He was playing the young Indiana Jones, and they were on a train, uh, he and his scout troop. And the train got attacked, and everybody got, all the scouts got scattered. And uh, they all did the same thing to go to one place, except for Indiana Jones. And he was in the desert alone, and he looked around and was like, everybody's lost but me. 
maybe it's not that everybody else is out to offend you. Maybe it's that you haven't gotten to the right place yet. So, here as we're reading, in a stunning turn of events, the one who thought he was the victim of the offense is now making amends for being offensive and confronting the perceived false offense by which he thought he was offended. Got that? Hope you wrote that down. Abraham finds himself in a situation now that he needs to make amends for being offensive because he assumed something on Abimelech's conduct and on Abimelech's character, character without getting all the facts. Now Abraham is like, you know what? You're right. I was wrong in what I did. I want to make amends. So again, be careful in how you approach people. Be careful in how you are offended. Make sure it's actually a sin against you and not just hurt feelings. So now Abraham is needing to make amends. And here he says that, uh, so Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. So Abraham said, take this gift from me, sheep and oxen, uh, to make a covenant, to show, hey, I am sorry about this. Would you forgive me? Here is a show of good faith. And then it says this in verse 28. Abraham set seven ewe lambs uh, of the flock apart. In other words, he gave these sheep and these oxen, but then he took seven of them and set them apart. Why? That's what Abimelech asked. It says, And Abimelech said to Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? And Abraham said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. And it says that they, they made a covenant with those seven ewe lambs. Now, we can, we've looked back like in chapter 15 of Genesis to see for Abraham what does it mean to make a covenant using animals. And we see the same thing throughout the Old Testament, that when it comes to a covenant and animals, it means a sacrifice. And especially, that, that's why we can see he gives all these sheep and oxen to Abimelech, but then he takes seven of them apart. He takes seven of them to set aside to make this covenant. So most likely, this involved a sacrifice of some sort to solidify this covenant between Abraham and Abimelech. And upon this solidifying this covenant with these lambs, with this uh, sacrifice, uh, it says that they, they, they swore an oath, they made a covenant. And it says, therefore, that place was called Beersheba. Beersheba means either the well of seven, as in those seven lambs, or it may mean uh, well of the oath. Because uh, the word for seven and the word for oath are very similar in Hebrew. So it's either well of seven or well of oath. Or if you're the type of person who needs to know for sure, it means both. All right. So they made a covenant here at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, uh, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. I'm going to come back to that passage here in a moment. Uh, it says that Abraham then planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. 
Now, it's interesting that he planted a tamarisk tree. Why? Why is that so noteworthy to say, oh, and Abraham planted a tamarisk tree? Uh, you know, the church, we are planting trees. We're setting trees uh, out in the front and here in the back. Now, a thousand years from now, do you think somebody's go, and EWC planted a maple tree? <laughs> probably not. Which means there's probably something more to this than just telling us that Abraham was a good environmentalist and he was celebrating the very first Arbor Day. There's probably something more to it than that. When... You plant a tree. Back then, trees were for two things, fruit, or food, and shade. In other words, when you planted a tree, it's because you expected to be there for a while. You expected there to be there to enjoy the fruit uh, or the shade of that tree. And so Abraham, in planting that tamarisk, tamarisk tree, was saying, I plan on being here for a while. This is where God has planted me. I will plant a tree here. And it says, And he called upon there the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And uh, I love where it says he sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines after that. Uh, it's funny, the word sojourn means to travel. But we find that he was staying put in this place. So why call him a sojourner when he's staying put? A sojourner is somebody who, that's not their land. They're a sojourner. They're, they're passing through. Yet there he was, planting a tree, expecting to be there for many days, which it says he was. Now, 1 Peter 2.11 tells us this. Beloved... I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter was calling his fellow believers. He's saying, you are sojourners. You are sojourners. In Philippians, Paul said this, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture makes it clear that just like Abraham was a sojourner, sojourning in this land, yet remaining, we are sojourners in this world. Yet this world is where we remain. But it doesn't change the fact that we are still only passing through. You know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. And one of the things that we, uh, most people give thanks for, is the fact that America is an awesome country. And that God has blessed us with being able to be born and, and to be able to live in America and, and the great country he's given us. But the fact is, this isn't our resting place. This isn't our home. We are sojourners. We are passing through. Uh, you know, an ambassador is not somebody who l is a citizen of the country that he's serving in. In other words, our U.S. ambassador uh, in Singapore is a U.S. citizen who right now is living in Singapore representing the interests and the, the power of the United States. Scripture says we are ambassadors of Christ here. In other words, we can't be an ambassador here if this is our home. We are ambassadors here representing Christ 
to the world around us, just like an ambassador represents his country to the country around him in which he lives. We are ambassadors. We need to be thankful for where we live, but even more so thankful for where our citizenship truly lies. That is truly something to be thankful for. But while we are here, while we are sojourning in this land, Jeremiah 29 says this, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray for the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, plant your tree. Seek the welfare of your neighbors. Seek the welfare of your community. That's what we've been talking about in community groups as we've been going through joining Jesus. Um, Seeking the welfare of our neighbors through the gospel. Seeking the welfare of our community through the gospel. Praying for them. Presenting Christ as ambassadors to them. And it says that he sojourned many days there, and that when he was there planting that tamarisk tree, that he called out, called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And when we hear that phrase, the everlasting God, we think, oh, that God is everlasting. No matter how far back you go or how far forward you go, he's always been there. He is always God. And that is absolutely true. But I love in the Hebrew, what, this, what it actually says, it says, uh, he called there on the name of the Lord, the God of eternity. The God of eternity. You're like, well, doesn't that mean the same thing just from one to the other? He's always been there? No. King David, who was he, kids? King of? King of heaven? What did he say? Oh, King David was the king over what country? What kingdom? Israel. Now, that meant that he was the ruler over Israel, that he was the sovereign king over Israel, that he was its ruler. When you say the king of Israel, you're talking about the guy who is in control of what goes on in Israel. So when it says that God is the God of eternity, it's not just saying that he's the God who has always existed and always will exist. He is the ruler, the controller of all eternity. He is in charge of it all. This is so much deeper than just saying God always has been. It's not only that he only has been, but he is in charge of everything that has been or ever will be. He is in control, which means as we sojourn through this world, as we seek to be faithful ambassadors, he controls our paths and by his grace we will always be able to succeed as ambassadors of christ it is a no-lose cause for us because we are ambassadors for the god of eternity the god who is in control of all and it is a no-lose cause for us but looking at this passage there's something that this gives us such an incredible word picture for. Jesus said in John chapter 5, as he was talking to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that bear witness to me, yet you will not come to me that you may have life. So Jesus saying the scriptures bear witness or point to him. And when he said that, 
in context, he's talking about the Old Testament, that the Old Testament points to him. And I'm not going to say that this passage represents or is symbolic of anything, because I don't have the right to do that. Only God has the right to say that a passage is symbolic of something else. But I will say that this passage gives us an incredible word picture. It brings to mind something. Abraham and Abimelech were at odds. And what was it that reconciled them and brought peace? Lamb. A lamb. A sacrificial lamb. And through that sacrifice, what did Abraham then have access to? Water that would give life to his flocks. There was conflict. There was hostility. Through the sacrifice of a lamb, Abraham had access to life-giving water. In John chapter 4, talking to the woman at the well, Jesus said this, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. How do we have access to that living water of eternal life? Through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Through the sacrifice of Christ. Listen to Ephesians 2 here as we close. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. In other words, you Gentiles, all of us. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. All right, let's stop there for the day. Wouldn't it be horrible if that's where this passage stopped? You're separated from Christ. You have no hope. Yay, let's go home. But listen, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Talking about how Abraham and Abimelech made peace through sacrificial lambs. Jesus Christ is our peace, who has made us both, talking about Jews and Gentiles, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expression, ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles. In other words, making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Kids, on your, on your coloring page there for the memory verse, you'll notice that that middle picture is of the cross. 
Because when we talk about all the things about, oh, going to somebody and talking to them, making peace, uh, Abraham and Abimelech making peace, the cross is the ultimate picture of making peace. Through the cross, Christ made it possible for wretched sinners to be at peace with a holy and righteous judge. That's huge. A holy, righteous judge who said in Exodus 34 that he will punish sin. Yet through Christ, he has made peace between us and God. Through a sacrifice that has given us access to living water. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then listen to this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are sojourners in this world. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That is such an incredible picture of what we see here between Abraham and Abimelech. Conflict, hostility, sacrifice, lambs. And if you want to say, well, there, we didn't see any sacrifice, so how do we know it's there? Okay, let's take the sacrifice out. What was it that Abraham gave through which peace was made? A lamb. It's still the same story. Through the offering of a lamb, access was made to living water. Through the lamb of God, we have access to the living water of eternal life. And if you're sitting here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, you have not yet made use of the incredible gift that God has given you through Christ. You have not yet put your trust alone in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross when he paid the penalty for your sins. If you haven't done that, I call you to that today. A lot of times we, we say, would I want you to consider that. Man, if somebody's drowning and I throw them a life preserver, I don't tell them to think about grabbing it. Hey, think about grabbing that. You know, it's, it'd be, you'd, you'd like it if you did. Trust me. No, I'd be like, take hold of it, man. Come on. So this morning, I don't say consider Christ. This morning, I say to you, take hold of him, man. He died for you. He wants to give you living water. He wants to give you himself for all of eternity. Take hold of him. Put your trust alone in Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you're a believer, then here's what I want you to hear. Give other people the same grace that you want from them. When it comes to being offended, when it comes to hurt feelings, when it comes to you think somebody did something wrong, extend to them the same grace that you would want them to extend to you. Are you being easily offended? Or are you being Christ-like? Those, there's a big difference between those two. How are you laying hold of the grace of God and the various relationships in your life? Are you doing like Abraham and then finding yourself, oh, now I've got to make amends for acting the fool? Or 
Are you laying a hold the grace of God to go to people in a Christ-like manner and seek reconciliation rather than confrontation? So that's where I want to leave you guys this morning as the praise team comes up. Uh, in your bulletin, you'll find some uh, discussion questions and a prayer focus. Uh, question there is one I really want you to, to think about. Has anyone ever confronted you for something you didn't actually say or do? How did it make you feel when they did that? On the flip side, have you ever confronted someone for something you found out later they didn't actually say or do? How did you feel when you found out they were actually innocent? I hope that after eating turkey on Thursday, you don't end up eating crow later this week. As a pastor joke. Uh, but really, uh, in, your, in your home today, go through these questions. Take your bulletin with you. Uh, talk about these questions. And how can you make this passage alive in your life? How can you, by the grace of God, take his word and use it as something that he wants to use it for? That is, to impact and change your life. And then there's a, a prayer focus there as well for you and your, uh, those around you to, to pray for, pray through this morning. But again, uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, lay hold of Christ. Lay hold of Christ. And if you are a believer, lay hold of his grace so that you will be a faithful ambassador and a sojourner who is a blessing to those around you. Uh, would you stand with me, please? As we get ready to celebrate what Christ has done for us, uh, in part giving thanks for what he has done for us as we take communion. If you're here with us uh, and you're a, a, an attender, a member, uh, if you're here with us and you're a guest with us, if you are a believer in Christ, we invite you to join us as we celebrate through communion what Christ has done for us. If you're with us this morning and you're not a believer, you haven't yet laid hold of Christ, then I want to invite you to think over the fact that you haven't laid hold of Christ and then ask, why? Why as a drowning person have you not laid hold of the life preserver that is Christ? Probably the only good reason you'll come up with is, and that's about it. So I invite you to stay in your seat if you're not a believer here this morning. And lay hold of Christ. But as the music begins this morning, uh, actually, hold it that thought, I would like for us first, uh, they're going to put the Apostles' Creed up. And here's why creeds are important. It helps us nail down what hill we're going to die on, what we believe, what is important to us. And so as we say the Apostles' Creed together, don't think of it as just some prayer that's written out that we're saying. Understand that we are declaring through this this is where I stand, and I shall not be moved from this hill. This is the hill I will die on. So join with me as we say the Apostles' Creed this morning. I believe in God. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.